0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ethicast. I'm Artie Maharaj at Ethisphere and I am pleased to share with you a session highlight from our recent Asia-Pacific Ethics Forum. In this conversation, you'll hear from two leading Morrison Forrester industry experts, Marcia Ellis, Global Chair of Private Equity at Morrison Forrester, and Stacey Sprinkle, Co-Chair of the ESG Practice. In this conversation, Marcia and Stacey will share their perspectives on supply chain due diligence and take a closer look at the Asia Fund's ESG Report 2023. We hope you enjoyed this session highlight from our recent
1: Asia Pacific Forum.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. We are very excited to bring you this conversation at the annual Asia Pacific Ethics and Compliance Forum concerning why Asian-based companies and private equity funds should be concerned about ESG-related regulations, not just in Asia, but around the world. Uh, My name is Marsha Ellis and I'm the global chair of private equity at MoFo. Stacy?
1: I'm Stacey Sprinkle. I am our co-chair of our ESG practice, and I lead our global ethics and compliance practice at Melville.
0: I'm particularly happy to have Stacey join me this morning because Stacy has done a lot of work um, considering how companies have to be prepared for all the oncoming regulations from various that are coming on board from the EU, from California, where Stacy actually sits, and from, from other places. Um, Stacy, for our clients sitting in Asia, why should they be focused on the evolving regulatory uh, landscapes outside of Asia related to supply chain diligence?
1: Marcia, it's a great question. And here's what I would say. First of all, do not assume that you are not covered by any of this legislation. So um, we're showing a particular map Um, that sort of sets forth the current ESG regulatory landscape, not because we're going to dig into detail on any of these particular pieces of legislation, but to really show, you know, this slide would have looked very different and almost um, empty a few years ago. And now there's just a rapid proliferation of regulations that apply to companies that operate or have business in different jurisdictions. So the very, very first place to start is to understand, you know, where are you operating? Even if you're based in Asia, do you have operations in other jurisdictions, you're doing business in other jurisdictions that have relevant legislation? And make sure that in fact, you don't hit the triggers to be covered by that those regulations. So um, that's fundamental. Um, we can take the slides down and I'll give you the other reason. Um, But second, even if you're not covered by any of this legislation, it's almost certainly the case that your counterparties are. You are almost certainly the case. you are almost certainly the part of the supply chain or the value chain of companies that are covered by this legislation. And this legislation requires them to be mapping out plans, conducting diligence. And being able to make disclosures and certain representations about what's happening in their supply and value chain. And if you are a part of that supply and value chain, then you need to understand what they're going to be expecting of you so that you're able to meet those expectations. Because the last thing that you want is to not be a viable um, third party, uh, viable supplier or vendor or otherwise. For various companies, because you can't meet their expectations um, as it as it relates to you know environmental, human rights, sustainability. So understanding the framework where global companies are headed and what your counterparties are required to do is really essential in order to be remain competitive in today's environment.
0: Now, Stacey, you talk about supply chain or value chain, and I, I just you know could you just explain what's the difference? What is, what is the meaning here? What is the intent?
1: Yeah. Well, so supply chain is really, um, is really sort of the, the different um, components that go into bringing a product to market Uh, value chain, which is what's being used in a lot of the legislation is really intended to capture a broader group of third-party interactions. Um, So, so, legislators and are thinking about regulators are thinking about um, everything from the when the idea is generated to how the product is ultimately used, including how it's disposed. So when you think about your value chain, you're just thinking about your third parties much more broadly because it's not just you know who is the supplier of this raw material. It's what are all of the different parties that I'm interacting with in order to bring a product to market and what are their emissions or what are their labor practices, for example.
0: So it's quite value chain is is considerably
1: more expansive and considerably more expansive by design.
0: Now, um, could you talk a little bit more about the S side of ESG and how it fits into this? Um, There's a lot of focus, obviously, on the environmental, the E side. Um, but we also see that a lot of these laws are focused on the S side, and that can cause trouble in some Asian jurisdictions.
1: Right. Well, so the focus on E makes sense, right? Because you see various, um, various regulations that are addressing and including scope three emissions. So in other words, the emissions of your supply chain, your value chain. Um, and so there's a lot of focus on the E right now, and that does make a lot of sense. that reason but these same regulations in many cases are focused on sustainability broadly and sustainability is not just about environmental impact it's also about the human rights impact of your products and services and so there's a lot of focus um, in in various emerging uh legislative regimes on human rights and on the things that you're doing to ensure that fair labor practices are um, employed by your suppliers and the other third parties that you're working with and in your own operations, um, you know, that there's no forced labor, there's no modern slavery, there's no child labor. In other words, are your practices throughout your supply and value chain fair and having, you know, and not having a negative um, impact on the human rights of the people that are involved?
0: So, I mean, as you've explained the the requirements, and also given that they can apply all the way through the value chain, this is all quite expansive, and it can be quite daunting for companies, especially for small and mid-sized companies. Um, how how should a company go about thinking about addressing these requirements? Well, what should they do?
1: Okay, well, let's start first with companies that already have in place certain programs to mitigate third-party risk, um, and what I would say to those companies is that this could be viewed as an opportunity. I think what's happened over the last decade, decade and a half is that big companies have many different departments that are looking at third-party risk in different ways and often very siloed ways. So you may have a procurement team that's looking at quality and safety, and now maybe they're tasked with human rights. Um, You have a compliance team that's looking at money laundering compliance, and anti-corruption compliance. You have an InfoSec team that's looking at you know, cyber and information security. You have um, another team over here that's looking at now climate. Um, you have trade control teams that are looking at export and controls and sanctions. Over time, you know this has become particularly burdensome, not just for the companies, but for the third parties that you're seeking to engage. And so what I see a lot of companies do at this particular point in time, is really taking a step back and saying, are we thinking about our third party risk sufficiently holistically, especially now that there are always added requirements in terms of what we need to understand about our third party? Um, so it can be an opportunity, it can be daunting, but it can be an opportunity to take, take a step back and really say, can we handle our third party risk in a more efficient way? Can we take a look at our third parties and figure out, do we need all of these third parties? There's a lot of opportunities But undoubtedly, it is adding additional requirements um, on vendors that companies are seeking to to apply. Now, that's assuming a certain size company with a certain amount of resources, right? There are smaller companies, plenty that we are familiar with, that that really haven't been focused on third-party risk, may not even have a lot of third-party risk. Um, but now, because of these, um, you know, various new regulations are either going to be required to make certain disclosures or undertake certain diligence or are going to be required to make representations to their counterparties about what they're doing um, with regard to their own labor practices and admissions. So, you know, the right place to start is really to just understand what kind of third parties are you using and where is your risk really? Um, and if you're going to start somewhere, start with a third party that actually present the most significant amount of risk to you, um, whether it's in human rights or corruption-related risk or sanctions, you know, really hone in and develop a program that's appropriately risk-based, focusing on the, the parties that present the most risk to you. So that's where I would start. There are some other, you know, fairly basic, um, but very significant um, protective things that companies can do. For example, make sure that your agreements with third parties have good compliance reps, including around um, you know human rights and forced labor practices and you know emissions, or put make clear upfront what your expectations are of your third parties from a compliance perspective what kind of data you may need from them in order to fulfill your own obligations and complete your own reports and things, if there's an opportunity here to um, really help educate our third parties about what our expectations are and, and what we need from them. So that's another place to start. And another idea is, you know, supplier code of conduct, for example, like this is not a particularly heavy list to put in place, but having a set code of conduct that you expect your suppliers to comply with um, can be a really helpful thing to do from a tone-setting perspective and from a narrative perspective, just in terms of demonstrating that, like, this is important to you. You take these issues seriously and you have certain expectations of the parties that are working with you.
0: Yeah, one time, one thing we've seen, because since I deal with private equity funds a lot, is that um, sometimes private equity funds are able to um, help these small and mid-sized companies that are their portfolio companies to um, help to advise them and help them put in place basic policies, et cetera, which they would not necessarily have the wherewithal to do on their own because of their size. So it can be a real um, benefit to private equity owned companies that they are are in this competitive landscape where you're going to have to have ESG policies, in order to win business, in some some cases, it can be incredibly important for them that those private equity funds are helping them get a leg up in that respect.
1: It's a really important point, and it's a really good idea. I mean, I've prepared numerous playbooks and guidebooks and things like that 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 um, you know investors will use, the private equity funds will use with their portfolio companies to say, like, this is what matters to us. This is when we expect you to check in with us if you have this kind of change that impacts your risk. Here's some template policies. You know, here are the different things that we'd like you to do um, at different stages of your development to make sure that compliance is kind of built in from the outset and top of mind. It is a lot harder to come in later and try to imprint, um, you know, sort of a compliance culture onto a company. So I fully agree with you. I think there are real opportunities and it can be a huge... um, value-add and competitive advantage for your portfolio companies.
0: Now, we focused a fair amount on third-party risk. Um, What are some other key considerations for
1: companies thinking about ESG? Um, Well, so maybe first and foremost is making sure that you have your own health in order from um, from an ESG perspective and particularly around um, your own kind of human rights and labor practices. I think there's so much focus right now on supply chain and what are your suppliers doing, but like what's happening in your own um, plants and at your own operations, and w- are you able to make the representations that you will need to be making um, to your counterparties about your own practices? So sort of getting your ho- own house in order from, you know, human rights, anti-bribery compliance, making sure that you really address your own internal risks is a significant area of focus. Um, Another one, as we were just mentioning, um, but if you're investing in companies or acquiring companies, ESG should be a key consideration in diligence um, and strategy in general. I mean, if you think about it this way, um, the ESG profile, if you will, like the human rights practices, the admissions of a company that you're either investing in or acquiring can materially impact your ability to meet your own um, obligations or to um, meet the different um, commitments that you've made um, publicly. So understanding where you're you know, investing your money or what you're acquiring um, and where they are from an ESG perspective is really important because it could either help or hinder you in meeting your own goals and commitments. Um, and certainly knowing if you're Purchasing or investing in something that's particularly risky is helpful to know um, at the outset. And third, I would just say, you know, to that end, it's really not just about legal compliance. I think if you're really thinking about ESG only as a matter of strict legal compliance, you're missing the opportunity. Um, ESG, in my opinion, is a way that you can affirmatively tell the story that you want to tell about the value that you bring as a company. And, you know, I often see. Um, legal, members of legal teams getting sort of cabined as being so narrowly focused on strict legal compliance. Like what does the law say and what is it requiring us to do? Legal teams, compliance teams add so much value when it comes to being involved in those strategic discussions about how, you know, how can we see what's coming? not just from the regulators, but in terms of what our investors expect, in terms of what our employees expect, in terms of what our counterparties expect and our customers. And how can we leverage the good things that we're already doing or the impact that we want to have to tell an affirmative story that will, you know, hopefully drive value and mitigate risk. So those are those are some thoughts that I have on on where companies can be focused here.
0: And I think that, um you know, One thing that we really need to focus on is that driving value aspect, because in this year, in our survey of 100 Asia headquartered PE funds, we found in the 2023 survey compared to the 2022 survey, there was more reluctance to roll out new ESG policies or to put more spending, more expense on on ESG. And certainly, there's a lot of reasons behind that. I think one of them is just the uncertain economy, especially in Asia, so that nobody wants to add additional expenses without a clear understanding of what the return is, the economic return is. And I think certainly with a lot of companies, that's got to be the emphasis. What is going to be the economic return? For um, for implementing ESG policies, um, people aren't just going to like say, "Oh, it's for the environment," or yeah, you know, everything. They just <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, no, um, what? How do you respond respond to PE funds and companies who are thinking of this as just a cost center?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, from a PE fund perspective, I know that there's a lot of focus on exit and being able to exit. And in my in my view. Um, Having strong ESG program protocols, policies, call it what you will, um, is going to really drive value in your portfolio companies. And, you know, if your portfolio companies are unable to compete meaningfully for, um, for business with big global companies that have, you know, regulatory requirements and significant expectations in this area because they haven't been focused. On making sure that they have their own house in order, from you know a, a labor, um, labor issues, labor rights, human rights, um, you know climate emissions perspective, they're not going to be as competitive, and that has a negative impact, obviously, on the value and the growth of those companies. So I do think it's directly linked. Like this, in my opinion, is not this is not about oh, it's nice to have a policy that you put on your you know website and tell everybody that you. You're wonderful because you care about the climate and you care about people. Yes, there's that, but this is really about impact and value. Like This is about how you're driving value um, at your company because you are able to meet stakeholder expectations, your counterparty's demands, your customer's demands, your employee's demands. Around business practices that are either sustainable or not sustainable, that are either you know hurting or helping people from a human rights perspective. So that's one thing I would say. Um, so I just think that 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 near term and certainly much more significantly longer term, companies that aren't paying attention to ESG, even smaller ones, are not going to be as competitive. They're just not going to be able to compete if they can't make the representations that they need to make about their compliance to their counterparty.
0: And if you were talking to a smaller company that's at the very beginning of their ESG journey, they have almost nothing. What would you think is the first step they should take?
1: So what I would do first is undertake some kind of a materiality or risk assessment as it relates to ESG. There's a lot of shortcuts to do this. Um, SASB has industry specific um, ESG factors and so you can find the ESG factors there's like 240 I think total but, but they've divided it up into over 70 different industries and really highlighted the industry factors that are most relevant um, in a given industry and it won't be perfect for you and you may be straddling a couple of different industries but grab those and and start to ask yourself like what are the environmental issues the social issues and the governance issues that are most likely going to be most material to us that are most likely going to impact our ability to meet our own financial goals and performance that are you know most likely to cause significant either um, you know legal or reputational risks to us and focus there um, and you know once you have a sense of what those risks are then you can, you can take things slow, you know? And, and it may be that there are certain kind of points through the development of a small company where your risk profile is gonna meaningfully change. And just be aware of where those points are and when they're coming. Um, try to be proactive about it rather than, you know, completely reactive to what's happening. Because the truth is that if you build sustainability goals goals around environment, goals around treating your workforce well, goals around being thoughtful about who your third parties and your value chain and supply chain are. If you build those things in early, you're doing a lot less fixing down the road, and you're setting yourself up to have a narrative that is really compelling, um, and that will really drive, uh, you know, customer interest and value. So I think thinking about it from that perspective, not being overwhelmed by, you know, the, the sort of, craziness and the rapid proliferation of regulations in the space and really focusing on where your risk is is the way to start.
0: Thanks very much, Stacey. Um, And we've got a slide up there about our Asia Funds ESG report from 2023. Um, This is, we did a survey of 100 different Asia-headquartered funds. These are mainstream funds. These are not ESG-focused funds, but uh, most of them are taking significant steps to developing their own ESG policies and requiring their portfolio companies to uh, follow ESG policies. So there's the QR code there. You can scan it and take a look at our whole survey. I think you'll find it interesting. Thanks again, Stacey. It's been great talking to you. Um, Likewise. Thank you, Marshall.